AFF on Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. G'day and welcome to episode 63 of AFF On Air, the podcast that teaches you how to maximise your frequent flyer points. It's Saturday the 26th of June 2021. In the last episode, travel agent Alan Lamb joined me to talk about travel into Australia during this stage of the COVID-19 pandemic. This fortnight, you'll hear part two of my interview with Alan, which is full of useful tips for anyone who needs to leave Australia at the moment. In part two of the interview, we'll talk about how to get an outbound travel exemption from the Australian government, some of the COVID-19 testing requirements you need to be aware of, issues with transiting countries that are classified as orange or red zones by your destination country, COVID-19 travel insurance and more. That interview is coming up shortly. And later in the episode, what happens to old airports after they get decommissioned? I'll talk about some of the old airports around the world which have been repurposed in clever ways. But first, let's begin with a roundup of the latest airline and frequent flyer news from the past fortnight. And sadly, a fresh COVID-19 outbreak in Sydney has prompted other Australian states and territories to impose new travel restrictions either on Sydney or in some cases on the whole state of New South Wales. Western Australia and South Australia were quick to impose hard borders with the state of New South Wales, and New Zealand has paused flights from New South Wales to New Zealand until at least the 7th of July. Anyone who's been in New South Wales since that pause came into effect is not currently allowed to fly to New Zealand, including via another state. But New Zealand has now lifted its pause on flights from Victoria, and most other Australian states have also now lifted most of their restrictions on travel from Melbourne, although there are still some exceptions. The border rules are changing constantly, unfortunately, so if you are planning to travel interstate or to New Zealand in the near future, be sure to check with the local state government authority, and you can also check on AFF's overview of Australian state and New Zealand border restrictions article, which is being updated at regular intervals, and you'll find that linked in the episode notes. Virgin Australia has joined Qantas and a growing number of other airlines and tourism businesses in promising prizes and other incentives to anyone who gets vaccinated against COVID-19. Last month, Qantas announced plans to offer generous prizes to immunised Australians, which could include things like frequent flyer points, status credits or flight vouchers. Qantas also hinted that it would give away 10 generous mega prizes, which could include free flights for a year and free hotel accommodation. Meanwhile, Virgin Australia will run a national competition which the airline is calling Vax and Win. One lucky winner will receive a million velocity points, while other prizes will include free business class flights or smaller quantities of velocity frequent flyer points. The competition will be open to all Australians over the age of 18 once uh, all Australian adults are eligible to receive a vaccine. And Luxury Escapes is already offering free $200 vouchers to the first 1 million vaccinated Australians who request a voucher by the 30th of September this year. This voucher would be valid for international escapes and it would need to be used by the middle of 2022. Air New Zealand will take over from Qantas on the routes from Sydney and Brisbane to Norfolk Island from the 30th of August 2021 for at least two years. Air New Zealand had been operating between Australia and Norfolk Island already since 2012 as part of an agreement with the Australian government. 
But in early 2021, Air New Zealand had to repeatedly suspend its flights to Norfolk Island due to crewing issues relating to trans-Tasman border closures. On each occasion, Qantas stepped in with rescue flights. In March 2021, in order to maintain those regular services, Qantas was then temporarily awarded the contract and took over those regular flights to Norfolk Island from New Zealand, initially for a three-month period, and then the contract was later extended until the 29th of August. But Air New Zealand will now return to Norfolk Island, it's been confirmed at the end of August, having established a temporary crew base in Brisbane to ensure that the continuity of those services can be maintained. Unfortunately, if you would like to redeem Qantas frequent flyer points to fly to Norfolk Island, you now have just a few months to do that if you wanted to fly with Qantas. But there is currently plenty of award availability on Qantas flights between Sydney, Brisbane and Norfolk Island in both economy and business class. Emirates has been quietly making it harder for frequent flyers to book or upgrade into a first-class seat using points. From next month, Emirates will discontinue its cheaper first-class Flex Skywards awards, which were available when booking a round-trip ticket. Instead, Skywards members will have to now pay more miles for a Flex Plus award going forward, regardless of whether they're booking one way or return. Emirates is also making business class save affairs non-upgradable using miles and increasing the number of Skywards miles that would be needed to upgrade from in, into first class from a business class flex ticket. It comes as Alaska Airlines mileage plan prepares to remove Emirates as a partner airline from the 31st of July. And from September, Japan Airlines mileage bank members will no longer be able to redeem their miles for Emirates first class seats, although Japan Airlines will remain a, mem- a partner airline of Emirates. And this from September will leave just Qantas Frequent Flyer and Emirates Skywards as the only programs where members are actually able to book Emirates First Class Awards. And Air Canada has been fined approximately 34 million Australian dollars by the US Department of Transportation for extreme delays in processing refunds to customers in the US whose flights were cancelled since the start of, pan- of the pandemic. According to US law, airlines are legally required to refund customers for cancelled or significantly changed flights to, from, within or via the United States within seven days. But from the beginning of the pandemic, Air Canada had refused to refund most customers at all, even when it was legally required to. Back in April of this year, Air Canada finally offered refunds to customers who had previously only been offered credits, but the US Department of Transportation asserts that over 5,000 customers who'd complained to the US government were forced to wait anywhere from 5 to 13 months to receive refunds that they should have been owed within seven days. The US Department of Transportation says the civil penalties based on a variety of factors, such as the consumer harm caused by the violations, and it's also hoping that this will deter other airlines from breaking US law in the future. In May 2020, the US government did say that it would be a bit more lenient on airlines that were struggling to cope with the high volume of refund requests, provided airlines were acting in good faith. But they say that Air Canada did not act in good faith. That's what's making news on australianfrequentflyer.com.au this fortnight. You can stay up to date between podcasts by subscribing to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest Frequent Flyer news straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday morning. If you're not already an Australian Frequent Flyer member, you're missing out on participating in Australia's largest online discussion forum for Frequent Flyers. 
The AFF Community Forum is a goldmine of useful resources on travel, loyalty programs, credit cards, and so much more. You can learn and ask questions about frequent flyer points, discover unique travel tips by reading our members' trip reports, or even find a great wine deal. By becoming an Australian Frequent Flyer member, you don't just get to participate in our lively forums. You can also send messages to other AFF members, access exclusive AFF offers and services, and you'll see fewer advertisements when browsing the site. And the best part, joining AFF is 100% free. If you're not already a member, visit australianfrequentflyer.com.au forward slash register. Welcome back to the podcast. So Alan Lamb from NetWave Travel is joining me today to talk about traveling in and out of Australia during the pandemic. We've talked about inbound travel into Australia, but what if you need to leave Australia for whatever reason? Well, Alan, one of the biggest issues at the moment with people that need to leave Australia is just getting an exemption to leave. Australia is one of the very few countries in the world that is banning overseas travel unless you have a specific exemption. So I just want to talk about that firstly uh, for a little bit. So what are actually the rules if you need to leave Australia? Uh, so if you're a permanent resident or Australian citizen of Australia, um, you can't leave Australia uh, due to the COVID-19 restrictions imposed by the Australian government uh, unless you have an exemption. You can apply for a number of different reasons uh, in order to be able to leave Australia. For example, if your travel is part of the COVID response, including provisions of aid, your travels for business or employment, urgent medical treatment that's not available in Australia, compelling reasons you know, f- for family, for example, for three months or longer, uh, other comp- compelling or compassionate grounds, and or if your travels in the national interest. E.g. sporting. Yeah. If you need to leave for three months or longer for compassionate reasons, I believe that um, there's a special process as well you can apply for. It's not really a special process per se. It's just the standard exemption. Uh, but you know, for if you're traveling for uh, compelling or compassionate grounds uh, due to, say, you know, you've got a family member who's uh, in end-of-life care and only has, say, a month left to live, that, uh, that sort of situation, then yes, you can definitely apply for exemption to travel. I have had instances where uh, people have been able to get exemptions to leave Australia uh, for less than three months. It doesn't necessarily have to be three months, and it really depends on what the situation is. Uh, it seems to be a bit of a sliding scale or a little bit fluid in terms of um, you know, what they'll prove, depending on what your exact circumstances are. And if you're normally a resident overseas or not an Australian citizen or permanent resident, you don't need to get an exemption to leave, right? Correct. So uh, they look at um, they look at your uh, history in Australia for the last. Uh, they used to look at the last twelve months, but now they're looking more close to the last twenty four months. Basically, if you've been um, outside Australia for more than half of that time, uh, then you don't need an exemption in order to leave the Australia, uh, leave Australia, even if you're an Australian citizen or permanent resident. Right. But if you do need an exemption, so what what's the process of applying to, for one of those exemptions? So visit the Home Affairs website. There's a couple of info pages about uh, travel requirements in terms of the exemption process and you know, what you might need to submit in terms of uh, documents. And depending on the situation, you know, if you're going for work, then you, you might be submitting, say, your work contract, uh, emails from employers and so forth, you know, seeking you to come to the, uh, go to you know, whichever country you're going to go to. If it's safe, compassionate reasons for, say, if, if you're going for a funeral, then you know, you'd be submitting death certificates, uh, proof of relationships and potentially doctor's letters, etc. And how long does it take to get um, approval for to leave the country? I've seen it take anywhere from four or five hours to about a week on average. Um, I've seen some also take a bit longer than that, um, even two, three weeks some cases for some reason, but most of the time it tends to be well within a week. Okay. So depending on what your reason for requ- for requesting an exemption is, you do need to submit certain documents. Uh, you talked about that a little bit um, just before, but uh, what kind of documents uh, would you need to submit to sort of make a really solid case? The best advice I can give there is to have a have a really good think about what your situation entails and what 
would uh, dot all the I's and cross all the T's in your particular situation. For example, if you've got um, if you've got a family member who's in end of life care, you know they've only got a month left to live, and you want to go and see them before they pass away, you'd want to look at what might you know bulk up that case and really support that case uh, that you know this person is uh, one in end of life care and two that you need to go and see them. Um, you know, in terms of say family relationship. So, you know, if it's, uh, you might be more likely to get approved for say, for, say, an immediate family member, such as, you know, mother, your mother or father, but, you know, it might be a bit less likely if, say, for your grandmother or grandfather. But, you know, proving that relationship is absolutely key. Um, you know, if they can't be sure that that relationship is genuine, then it's obviously very difficult. With proving a family relationship, you could be using marriage certificates, birth certificates, um, and birth certificates probably better because, for example, if it's uh, your mother or father, then, you know, they would be listed on your birth certificate. You could be looking at, say, letters from the, the doctors over there that uh, confirm you know, uh, that your family member is in end-of-life care and how long they have to live. Focus on little details. The little details like that this person's only got a month left to live uh, is important because that shows urgency in your application. Uh, whereas if, if the doctor's written a letter that says uh, that your uh, family member is in end-of-life care and doesn't state anything about timeframes or urgency or anything like that, then you know, it doesn't really show that your case is urgent and there's an urgent need for travel. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, that may not help, uh, help your case. So you know, little details like that are important. You really, you know, really ensure you cross, uh, cross your T's, dot your I's in, in this sort of circumstance to prove that kind of situation. Um, the more letters you have, the more documentation you have, the better. There's no limit on the number of documents you can submit. Um, so you really you know, submit as much as you can to, you know, to really prove your case. And have you seen, this is a question I get quite a lot, like people who want to travel overseas for more than three months um, because they want to see family or like maybe most of their family lives in another country uh, and they're not necessarily uh, about to die, but they just really miss their family, haven't seen them for more than a year. Do you know if people have been able to get exemptions in those kinds of cases if they're going for more than three months? I've seen a, I've seen a very mixed bag when it comes to those sort of circumstances. Uh, if you've got, I think I've, I've seen a, Clients at least have better luck if um, they have uh, relatives or family members who are much older uh, rather than younger. You know, younger ones I don't tend to see as many approvals, but uh, definitely with you know, older family overseas uh, that you haven't seen for a long time. And you know, if you can prove that that's the case, uh, then you know, they they seem to be more willing to approve those sort of situations. But again, it's a case by case basis. Yeah, I mean, it is it is really quite sad that we need to go to all this trouble just to be able to go overseas and see our family. But I guess that's that's the time we're in at the moment. Uh, and if you do need to apply for an exemption, how much time in advance before your travel should you be applying? Um, so the home affairs guidelines are that you can't apply more than two months before you intend to travel. And uh, once you get approved, um, you only have three months to use your exemption now. That, that was a rule that they recently brought in a couple of months ago, that you no longer have, a, I guess, like an indefinite uh, period to leave Australia. So you now have to, unfortunately, travel within that three months now. Uh, so you, you don't want to apply too early. Do you need to apply to leave on a specific date? They do ask you to nominate a travel date, um, but it, it's fluid. You don't you don't have to specifically leave on that particular date. It's not a like it's not an approval to leave on only that date. Okay, and if if say for example um, you found out that maybe one of your relatives was really really sick and they were probably likely to die in the next few days, and uh, God forbid that, that ever happens to anyone, but would you be able to get the process expedited, or could you just turn up at the airport and apply then if you really needed to go urgently? I have heard, I have seen the odd person. Uh, uh, posts in some of the Facebook groups that uh, they were able to uh, obtain an uh, exemption you know, by going to the airport and pleading a case. But um, certainly, at least you know, officially by the rules, it's not something that uh, is supported by Home Affairs. Uh, so yeah, I, I would recommend that if, if it's a situation where 
someone is coming you know, close to death uh, and you, know, you need to be there, then you know, getting an application in a bit earlier may uh, potentially be a good idea. Okay. And now, so that's that's um, exemptions to leave. But in terms of booking flights, now, thankfully, because there are no arrival, like no caps on the number of passengers the airlines can carry out of Australia, it is a bit easier to book a flight um, leaving Australia rather than coming back here. But what are some of the considerations people should be looking at when booking uh, outbound flights out of Australia at the moment? Uh, some considerations that, that you may want to take into consideration when they're leaving Australia is uh, COVID test requirements, uh, particularly if uh, you're going to be transiting uh, one or possibly even two other airports or countries. Germany is one that comes to mind, you know, having had quite onerous restrictions on uh, COVID test requirements. So you had to have a COVID test done within 48 hours of arriving in Germany. Uh, and given that it takes about 24 hours for us to get to Europe, uh, you, know, you really only have about 24 hours uh, in order to get that COVID test done. So you have some really, really tight timeframes. And um, with a lot of the pathology labs in Australia, unfortunately, you know, those, uh, those timeframe requirements are very, very tough to meet. Yeah. Can we just talk about that for a moment? Because um, getting a COVID test, and I know Germany's not the only country that has this, Poland, I think, is another one, and there's, there's probably others that require you to get a negative COVID-19 test within 48 hours before you arrive in that country. When it takes 24 to 30 hours to travel from Australia to that country, that's not a lot of time. That's a very tight window to get the test before you leave Australia. So what, what can people actually do when they need such a short turnaround time? There's only really one viable answer, uh, possibly two viable answers uh, when it comes to trying to meet those requirements. I know Poland, for example, uh, uh, had a 48-hour before-arrival rule. Um, other countries with uh, similar before-arrival rules are Spain. Uh, there's a 72 hours. Germany, thankfully, is now relaxed at 72 hours as well. Ireland is also another one that's 72 hours. Before arrival in the country. So, so no, for Ireland, it's 72 hours before uh, before the last flight that takes you to Ireland. Uh, and for most people, that might be, say, like a London to Dublin. So you'd have to actually time it from when you leave uh, leave London, mm-hmm. which for all intents and purposes is pretty close to, you know, uh, time timeline-wise, pretty similar to uh, 72 hours before arriving in, say, Germany or Spain yeah, that's right. uh, in terms of actual timeframes. In terms of working around the problem, uh, at Sydney Airport, I think it's, I think it's Helios. Sorry, no, it, no, it's not Helios, it's Histopath uh, that runs a uh, COVID test swabbing facility at Sydney International Airport. It is outside uh, near check-in row H at uh, International, and they do offer a rapid turnaround for PCR tests, and it's $150, uh, and turnaround is about one hour. So if you're coming from uh, outside Sydney, uh, you could potentially fly up, say, the day before, or you could fly up you know, several hours early, such that you've got, say, five, six, four, five, six hours in Sydney in order to be able to go across the Sydney International and get that test done. And you'd be well within the 48 hours of, uh, before arrival in that, in that situation. Uh, another solution is, uh, particularly if you live in Sydney, uh, you potentially could go to the COVID test facilities at the various labs where they actually operate one outside the lab. Uh, so Laverty Pathology, for example, in Sydney offers that. Uh, Foresight uh, Pathology also offers that, both of them in Northride. In Melbourne, you can get a quick, pretty quick turnaround if you go to Dorovich um, Pathology there out at Heidelberg. I'm not sure where to go, particularly with uh, South Australia, unfortunately, but uh, I do know SA pathology do turn, do turn around uh, COVID tests quite quickly if you happen to be near their lab, uh, which I believe is in the CBD, from, or pretty close to the CBD. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any too many data points for uh, Queensland, unfortunately. Um, but yes, that, yeah, there's, there's very limited ways to uh, you know, be within those rules, but um, 
another consideration is if you're coming from in the state, make sure that you've got enough time to, if you're going to do that test in Sydney and do the rapid test at Sydney Airport. Yes. And just just to clarify, so um, for travel inbound into Australia, Australia also does require a COVID test um, 72 hours before, but I think that's 72 hours before you board the first flight, right? Not when you arrive in Australia. Yes, generally, at least for Australian requirements, it's 72 hours before you depart from your first port on the ticket. So if you're flying, say, um, yeah, from London to uh, Singapore and London, uh, then Singapore to Sydney, then you, know, you would do your COVID test within 72 hours of uh, departure time from London. So you do have plenty of time in that sort of situation. However, there's obviously considerations about transit ports. Um, and you know, if you're transiting a certain country uh, in between, for example, Germany, then you know, Germany's rules being more strict than Australia, you would have to um, follow Germany's rules in that situation. Uh, but do be careful of conflicting requirements. For example, yeah, Germany requires a, a a COVID test for those who are six and over. However, Australia requires a COVID test for those who are five and over. So, you know, if you've got someone, who, a, a child that's uh, five, then you still need to do the COVID test because even though Germany doesn't require it, Australia still does. Um, so, you know, considerations for transit, transports and airlines in, uh, in between and so forth are also important. But thankfully, most airlines are not requiring COVID tests these days because uh, all the countries are requiring it anyway. Because they're doing it for them. Uh, but it's something, yeah, so it's something that needs to be kept in mind with, wherever you're transiting. Uh, you know, if, you've, if you're transiting, say, say you've got a journey from uh, Sydney to uh, Madrid and you're going Sydney, Singapore, Singapore, Frankfurt, Frankfurt to... Madrid, uh, then you, know, you need to be checking the COVID test requirements for Spain, Germany, as well as Singapore. Um, so there's quite a few things to check there. And then you have to uh, mash the requirements together in terms of you know working out what's the lowest common denominator and all those uh, requirements. Mm. It is so complicated and it would be nice if every country just uh, got together and worked out a consistent framework for this kind of thing. Sadly, they haven't at this point. Um, now, getting a COVID test before travelling overseas out of Australia, can you just go to one of the free testing sites at like one of the public hospitals, um, you know, using your Medicare card, no. or do you need to go to a private pathology clinic? No, it has to be a, private, a privately paid for pathology test because you need what's called a fit-to-fly certificate. Those are only offered when you do a, do the test privately rather than paid for by the government through Medicare. Uh, the exception to that rule is actually in South Australia, actually. Uh, SA Pathology being a government-run service, um, they actually do offer a fit-to-fly certificate and they don't believe you actually have to pay for it, even though if you've done the have done the free test. Uh, so for those in uh, South Australia, that's a bit of a benefit. Okay. And what, are there any other things that people should be aware of? Um, paperwork is probably the most important thing. Uh, a lot of countries have uh, passenger locator forms, or they've got uh, various other declarations. If you feel like, for example, you know, coming into Australia, you've got the Australian Travel Declaration. I know Spain at the moment has the health control form that you've got to fill out. Depending where you're coming from, Germany also requires a declaration form you're declaring where you're going to quarantine. It doesn't apply for those coming from Australia, but other countries, yes. Poland requires a passenger locator form as well. Uh, the UK's got one. Ireland's got one. Yeah, so various countries all have different rules and requirements in terms of paperwork as well. And uh, these these forms are forever changing and requirements are forever changing. So it's something that you, know, you need to really be on top of if you're making your own booking. And I understand that many countries overseas have implemented kind of a traffic light system. So like yellow, orange and red or green, amber and red or whatever it is uh, with different levels of requirements depending on which country you're coming from. And for most countries, Australia would be in the green category. But you also do need to be aware of um, the category of any transit countries. Yes, that's correct. Uh, the UK especially uh, and also Ireland as well have requirements around uh, where you're transiting and there's quite specific rules about um, you know, what happens if you're transiting another country. So if you're coming, uh, going to the UK or Ireland, Ireland doesn't quite operate a traffic light system. It's more just a Category 1, Category 2, but the UK does have a red, amber, green list. Uh, and so the, for the UK, uh, if you 
only going through green list countries, then you don't need to self-isolate on arrival. You just have to do a COVID test on arrival two days uh, two days after arrival. If you happen to be going from uh, or through any amber list countries, then you have to follow the amber list requirements. Uh, and that means that you'd have to self-isolate for 10 days at a place of your choice. Um, you do have to do a COVID test on days two and eight. And then finally, if you're coming from uh, coming from or through a red list country, then you're required to do mandatory hotel quarantine, which you have to pre-book before you fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you would have to do you did the same COVID test as well to uh, days two and eight. Uh, and you also can't be released early uh, when it's when mandatory hotel quarantine is required. Uh, so this is an important. This may be very well an important consideration in terms of what route that you take to. Uh, the UK or Ireland. Uh, at the moment, with the UK list as of the 9th of June, um, the UK list, uh, only the only viable country on there as a transit point for, for Australians is uh, Singapore. And so uh, because the only airlines flying through Singapore at the moment to London is Singapore Airlines, that's pretty much the only choice that you have as far as uh, sticking to green list countries. If you fly another airline, say you know, the Middle East carriers like Qatar, Etihad or Emirates, uh, they've recently resumed flight to London uh, now that the UK has got a dedicated facility for red list country arrivals. If you do go through a country that is not on the green list, then you are uh, obviously required to follow the tighter restrictions. Uh, so if you fly from, say, Australia to Dubai and then Dubai to London, uh, because the United Arab Emirates is a red list country, you would have to follow the red list country requirements, which means mandatory hotel quarantine, unfortunately. Oh, well, in this case, it sounds like Singapore Airlines really is a great way to fly if you need to get to the UK then. Yes, it is pretty much the only way at the moment. Yes. Now, you have a very useful guide on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum called Travelling to Australia During COVID-19, and there's some very detailed, useful information on there. I'd encourage anyone to have a look at that if you're looking at travelling to Australia at this time from, from somewhere other than New Zealand. Um, and also um, related to this guide, there's a discussion thread where uh, people on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum can ask you questions. And we've had a question from someone called Pineapple Skip, or that's their um, AFF username, um, who's asking about travel insurance. So this person says, what are the current options with travel insurance for travel uh, outbound from Australia? Um, and this person also asks about um, what are the implications of the do not travel warnings around the world in terms of getting travel insurance if you're traveling to a country that the Australian government classifies as do not travel, which at the moment is everything except Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and also they ask about the airline COVID-19 insurance policies. So um, I guess firstly, does anyone or do, do any of the travel insurers actually cover travel outside of Australia and New Zealand at the moment? The major uh, travel insurers do definitely cover uh, cover you for uh, some aspects of travel, uh, but unfortunately not everything. Uh, there's certainly uh, one one uh, word of advice is definitely there's a lot of holes in the uh, various travel insurance policies at the moment, lots of gaps uh, that you possibly you know may encounter. Uh, so it's really important to really read the PDS document very thoroughly uh, to make sure that your circumstances for everything you know, that you'll be doing will be covered. So to break up the insurance. Uh, Policies at the moment. Some of the, some airlines like Japan Airlines, Cathay Pacific, uh, Etihad Airways, and Emirates uh, are offering COVID nineteen insurance as part of your ticket. Um, and this COVID nineteen insurance covers you. you know, I'll, I'll use Cathay Pacific as an example, but uh, Cathay Pacific uh, will cover you for COVID nineteen if you happen to get COVID nineteen within the first thirty days of your trip, if it's a one way ticket, um, or upon your return to your home country, whichever occurs earlier. But you know, there's obviously no obligation to use the insurance, and uh, you're not forced to use it. But uh, it's there if you potentially want to take advantage of it. The Cathay Pacific's insurance is valid for one-way return or even you know, multi-city type uh, tickets, so you're definitely covered uh, for all those types of tickets. 
there are some restrictions around what you're covered for, but generally you, you know, you're covered for overseas medical expenses, quarantine costs, COVID-19 tests, you know, whether you're positive or negative, any associated medical treatment and so forth. Uh, but I do recommend that you have a look at the, um, the terms and conditions of those insurance policies. Yeah. And, and again, you know, there's a lot of holes in these airline policies as well. Most of them also don't cover you if you get caught out by quarantine requirements. It's only really if you get, um, actually get COVID-19, I guess, right? Yes, some of the airline ones do have some limited cover for quarantine uh, costs and whatnot. So, okay. um, but it certainly wouldn't cover you for say, you know, if you were required to quarantine in say England, then you couldn't, you know, you couldn't go on your trip to Scotland, and yeah, therefore the cancellation and amendment costs are associated with that. You know, you, something that you wouldn't be covered by by the airline policy. Uh, so again, you know, this this is one example of a hole that potentially be a, a gap in your cover. Sure. As far as standalone policies, uh, you know, from your usual travel insurers like Covermore and uh, Insure and Go and Travel Insurance Direct and so forth, it really, really, I can't stress enough to, you know, it's really important to check the PDS documents um, in terms of what you'd be covered for. You know, there's a lot of uh, various policies of various uh, varying holes in their policy. Uh, one that comes to mind uh, that I recently saw was the Covermore PDS that you have mentioned that uh, you won't be covered for certain items if there's an outbreak of an infectious disease. But um, unfortunately, outbreak is not defined in the PDS. And so you could have situations where the government may say in a in a media release that there's an outbreak of a certain disease. It doesn't have to be COVID-19, it could be, say, norovirus. Um, and you, you, know, you may suddenly find yourself not covered for a hospitalization due to norovirus. Um, so there's a lot of issues like that that you, know, you really need to have a think about when you read the PDS documents from the insurance companies. Uh, in terms of other cover, like say you know, baggage, I, I believe most of the policies do cover you for baggage, you know, lost baggage, that sort of thing. Um, but there's, there's also some exclusions around COVID-19 if there's any delays uh, to your travel. So again, something to be mindful of when you're reading these PDS documents. Well, thanks for that, Alan. It's really interesting uh, information for anyone trying to come in, in or out of Australia. Now, you are a travel agent. If anyone would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, people can get in touch with me on AFF uh, if you happen to be a member or you can sign up. It's free. Um, my username is madrooster, M-A-D-R-O-O-S-T-E-R, or you can email me at alan at netwavetravel.com. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Appreciate your time. Thank you again, Matt. I hope you found that interview useful. As a quick reminder, you can get lots more information about travelling to Australia during COVID-19 in Alan's helpful guide on AFF. It's called Travelling to Australia During COVID-19 Guide, and you'll find it as a sticky thread in Australian Frequent Flyers Coronavirus and Travel Forum. There's also a link to it in the notes for this podcast episode. If you have a question for Alan about international travel during COVID-19, you're welcome to post it in the discussion thread associated with that guide on AFF as well. That thread is called Travelling to Australia During COVID-19 Discussion, and you'll also find it in the Coronavirus and Travel Forum or linked in the episode notes. And a quick reminder that you can contact Alan by emailing alan at netwavetravel.com, that's Alan with one L, or by starting a conversation with him on AFF where his username is madrooster. And if you haven't yet listened to last fortnight's episode on travelling to Australia during COVID-19, I'd also encourage you to go back and listen to that. That was episode number 62. And also, just a quick apology for my poor editing in the last episode. I do realise that at the end of the part one of the interview with Alan, I said we'd be back with part two of the interview after a quick break. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't really consider two weeks to be a quick break. So I'm sorry if I confused anyone there. 
In the early days of aviation, many cities built their airports quite close to the centre of town or right on what would have back then been the outskirts of the city. But over time, as cities have grown around their existing airport and airports themselves have become much busier and needed to expand, many cities have since replaced their older inner-city airports with newer, much larger airports which are further away from the centre of the city. We've seen this in lots of different places in recent years. For example, larger, more modern airports have replaced old airports in Berlin and Istanbul, to give a few examples. And if we look back a bit further, similar things have happened in places like Bangkok, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, Durban, Casablanca, Doha and Athens. But what happens to those old airports once they become decommissioned? Well, some continue to be used as airports, either as the city's second airport, like Don Muang Airport in Bangkok. Others become military bases, like Polonia International Airport in Medan, Indonesia, which became Suwondo Air Force Base when a new, more modern international airport opened in Medan in 2013. And some, like Istanbul's old Ataturk Airport, become cargo-only airports, and they become kind of cargo hubs. But many old airports are given a second life as something totally different. Of course, the temptation is always there just to sell the land to developers and make a quick buck for the government. I mean, after all, these are generally very large areas of often prime inner-city real estate. But that doesn't always happen. In Jakarta, for example, the old international airport was replaced by the current one in 1985, and after that the site's been redeveloped to become the grounds of the Jakarta International Expo. Some other old airports have been converted into public parks or open spaces. In the capital of Germany, Berlin, after the old Tempelhof airport closed down, the city quite famously held a referendum on the site's future. The city overwhelmingly voted to keep the space exactly as it was, and it was turned into a public park. Now, that's actually one of my personal favourite places in the world. It's larger not only than the entire country of Monaco, but all of the old runways and taxiways at Tempelhof Airport are still there, making them perfect for rollerblading, cycling or skateboarding or even windsurfing. And it's also just a huge open space where you could fly a kite or have a barbecue right in the middle of Berlin. It's wonderful. And during winter when the airport snowed under, it's also a popular place for Berliners to take their children to build snowmen or do winter sports. The original airport buildings are still intact too, and you can even take a tour of them for a few euros. It's quite an interesting tour. It's a similar story for the old Chiang Rai Airport in Thailand, or the old Masikul Sukre International Airport in Quito, Ecuador, which have also been converted into public parks. And just last month, a huge new aviation-themed sky garden opened at the old site of the runway at Hong Kong's famous Kai Tak Airport. Now, in Hong Kong, they've done a lot more development on the old airport site than in, say, Berlin, where the airport's pretty much been left as is. It's become a sort of a cruise terminal and there's a bunch of other stuff going on. But I have to say that new public space on the side of the old runway looks very, very cool. The park has 1.4 kilometres of seasonal elevated walkways, lookout spots, play areas and more. So definitely something to check out whenever I'm able to get back to Hong Kong, whenever that may be. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Alan Lamb from NetWave Travel, and thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd take just a minute to review AFF On Air on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform to receive every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels. Listener.